Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to episode 4-427 of the Run Run Live podcast. And here we are at the center of a pandemic. Most days, I'd be sitting in my home office writing, but with the apocalypse in full swing, I figure my time would be better spent uh, sitting in my home office and writing. I suppose I should make an effort to paint the context for you, because we may need to look back on this episode and listen and rethink. It may be a historical document. So, my future listeners, it is the day before the Ides of March in 2020. We are in the grips of the coronavirus. This week, they canceled all major sports seasons and postponed the Boston Marathon for the first time in 124 years until September. And Americans are all being told to work from home. And most businesses are closed. There has been a run on toilet paper and bottled water for some reason. And does it affect me? Well, I suppose we'll see. I started working for a big company a couple of months ago, and that's looking fairly prescient as a career move. So, last couple of weeks, I was down in Dallas two weeks ago after we spoke, and then I was at a conference in Atlanta this past week. I was supposed to be out in Grand Rapids at a client next week, but that got canceled. No big deal. I can work virtually. It's not a game ender. After we last spoke, I entered into the hard part of my training. I think I had a 2.45 uh, long run with some tempo in it the next day, the day after, and I knocked that out pretty strong. Legs feeling good. Had a down week with a one-hour fast finish run where I came back the last 30 minutes faster than the, the first, and that, that went really well. And this week was going to be a monster week with big miles and three killer workouts, but after they rescheduled the marathon, I'm going to back off a little bit and switch back to base building. Basically, that would be my advice if your race gets canceled. Just switch back to uh, base building phase, right? So a lot of long zone two runs. And try to get healthy and strong until your next campaign starts. 
Today we speak with Adam and Shoshana about how a vegan diet saved Adam's life. And I know we've covered this topic before, and some people get a little uncomfortable with the whole V-word thing, but I had a request specifically to explore this topic, how to manage a vegan diet while competing at a high level as an endurance athlete. And Adam and Shoshana were kind enough to speak to me about that. In section one, I'm going to talk about sleep and the impact of not getting enough or getting too much sleep. In section two, just because it felt timely, it felt right. I wrote an apocalypse story for you this morning. Yeah, I love the apocalypse genre. I don't know why. I guess because it's the ultimate escapism, right? And before my racing plans got changed, I woke up to a fairly severe tempo workout in Atlanta Tuesday morning. And again, with Boston four or five weeks away at the time, this was it. This was the dark place, the final push. And that Tuesday workout coach gave me was an eight by seven minute workout. So warm up and then run seven minutes hard with a two minute recover. Repeat that eight times, cool down. And ironically, at my current pace and fitness, that's almost perfectly a mile repeat. It's like spot on. That's basically my tempo pace, or at least my early in the morning in Atlanta uh, jet lag tempo pace. And I knew I was going to be in Atlanta. And the thing about Atlanta is that unless you find a track, it's a, it's hard to find a good place to do mile repeats. It's just not a runner-friendly city. But I was staying north of the city in Roswell because all of the hotels were sold out downtown in the city where the conference was. Of course, I could have got one at last minute for nothing because 60% of the people canceled. But that's another story. I am fairly familiar with this particular workout. I have run it actually in Atlanta before I remember doing it. And I have this strategy. So while the roads around Atlanta are a nightmare for running, especially doing any tempo work, the parking lots are great, especially early in the morning. So I zoomed in on the Google Maps around the hotel, and I found some beautiful, giant parking lots less than a mile away. And it turns out, without knowing it ahead of time, I had positioned myself across the street from the new Atlanta Braves Stadium. Up in Roswell. Yeah. So I rolled out of bed early and ran over to where I knew the parking lot was. It was raining, but a warmish, you know, 50-ish degrees. The sun wasn't up yet. I had to cross the highway, but this was okay because around the stadium, the sidewalks and the walkways are all designed for that stadium traffic. So they're all 15 foot wide with ramps and all this other stuff. So it wasn't bad at all. On the Google Maps, the parking lot looked flat, but in reality, it was a bit of a saddle shape. If I stuck to the outside, it was like about a quarter mile on each side, which is good, nice and long, with the center being the high spot in the saddle, and maybe, I don't know, 50 feet of drop to the edges on the sides. So I hit the old lap button and got to it, holding a pretty good pace up and down the inclines, getting to practice my form. You know, it was a struggle. It's always a struggle. Speed work is no fun. 
It was raining. I had my jet lag in the dark up and down these long lanes in this parking lot. I pushed hard. I worked my form and I settled into that aching discomfort of the tempo. And that's how you do it, right? That's why you do it. It makes you stronger. But this parking lot, as it turns out, was the marshalling area for the local construction worker crews. As I ground out my repeats, they loaded and unloaded into pickup trucks and vans and trailers with their orange vests and hard hats, and I didn't pay them much attention, but it was a nice distraction from my suffering. If we did cross path, I gave them a little nod as I pushed by. And I wondered, though, what they were thinking (laughs) of this old guy pushing up and down the parking lot in the early morning rain. And I got to thinking about how these, these workouts, these are the types of workouts that really, they make a difference. They make you strong if you can push through them and survive them. These are the types of workouts that separate the, the normal from the exceptional. And the next day I used Google Maps again to find a trailhead close to the hotel and followed it down to the Chattahoochee River and ran in a park. My legs were tired, but I was grateful to find the river trail. Now, I know you all have worries today and this week, but this is your opportunity to practice some leadership. Us old ones, we've been through all this stuff before. And you know what? The sun always comes up the next day, even during these crises, the world has yet to come to an end. And the things that you have that really matter, you still have those. No one can take those from you. This is your opportunity to lead with a positivity that looks calmly to the future, that brings hope, that inspires. Be that leader today. People are watching you. Be the calming presence. Be the positive spark. Be the hope that they are looking for. And on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. The impact of sleep... One of the things I've been trying to do in my life is get more sleep. And my assumption is that this is a thing worth pursuing. But thinking about it, I really don't know much about why I think that getting more sleep is a good thing or not, other than hearsay and popular media. And we all know that is a knowledge path fraught with old wives' tales. Although... This week, I notched my 35th wedding anniversary, and as far as I know, my old wife doesn't have a tail. Careful with your homophones there, kids. How much sleep do we need? What are the effects of not getting enough sleep? Why do we need sleep anyhow? What does sleep do for us? Can you get too much sleep? Can you go without sleep and then sleep more to catch up? Hmm, these are all good questions. Let's start with... What does sleep do, and why do we need it? Well, the truth is that science isn't super clear on that. They think 
that sleep is like a maintenance routine. When you sleep, your brain consolidates all that information you've sucked up during your waking hours, and it sorts it all out, sort of like running a defrag on your hard drive. And they think there are related physical, hormonal, and other maintenance routines running as well. And this makes sense to me as an endurance athlete. I have no proof, but I feel like I perform better both physically and mentally, and I recover faster when I get enough sleep, especially when I'm deep into a training campaign like I was recently. Now, they also seem fairly mushy around the question of how much sleep. The published guidelines are seven to nine hours for normal adults, and maybe a bit more for children under 18 and the elderly. But it smells like they're curve-fitting here to me. We all know those people, like my coach, or Sam Walton, or Tony Robbins, who only sleep three to four hours a night, or in Sam's case, slept, because he's sleeping now 24-7. I'm sure you know people who need more than the average and are just miserable trying to get along with the rest of us and society's sleep expectations. I'm squarely in the seven to nine camp. I've tried to get by with less, but I can't function with less. As a professional journalist, hey, I got paid for writing once. I can't write an article about sleep without opining that modern society is waging a war on all of our sleep. Woe are we, wringing of hands, you can fill in the rest. But what happens if you don't get enough sleep? Lucky for you, I spent a good 15 to 20 minutes surveying the scientific journals on all these questions, so yeah, I'm an expert now. But... On a more serious note, all of these things have actually been tested over the years. Sleep studies seem to be the go-to research for many of the promising PhD candidates. It's sort of like the the volcano in middle school, you know, or the uh, do plants like to listen to rock music experiment in middle school. It's like that. It's an easy experiment to set up. You get a bunch of people, you subject them to various levels of sleep, Then you test them versus a control and a baseline. So what kind of tests, you may ask? Good question. They measure the effect of sleep on both physical and cognitive conditions. For the physical, they measure your blood, and they look for the effect of sleep deprivation on hormone levels. For the cognitive, they do a couple different types of tests. One is an actual test, like a pop quiz, They give you things to memorize, they wait a few ticks, and they have you try to recall them. This tests the effect of sleep on memory. They also do a bunch of decision-making type tests. They give you decisions to make and they measure you. In the last few years, as technology gets better, they can stuff your head into the big magnet machine and do an MRI while you're doing these cognitive tests and watch which parts of your brain light up, which is pretty cool. And I'll get to some more entertaining anecdotal storytelling, but the boring scientific stuff is that sleep deprivation basically reduces cognitive function. For both low-level repetitive tasks and more high-level complex tasks, it reduces that cognitive function. So in layman's terms, you don't think as well when you are sleep-deprived. 
your memory is impacted as well. Sleep-deprived humans don't score well on that memory recall test. The other very interesting MRI results, they show that your brain activity, and by derivation the brain function, tends to switch from the cortex to the amygdala. And I'm going to stop here and say that amygdala is really fun to say. Sounds like a good name for a punk rock band or a dance craze. Amygdala, amygdala, amygdala. Anyhow, why do you care? Because when you're sleep deprived, you rely more on your ancient dinosaur brain and you don't use your big smart human brain as much. So take decision making, for instance. Your amygdala makes terrible, unthoughtful decisions. It's like a drunk teenager. When you don't get enough sleep, the parent leaves the house and the amygdala has a keg party. That kind of decision. In practice, this leads to making bad lifestyle choices when you're exhausted, and we've all been there. So physically, sleep deprivation seems to juice up your bad hormones and generally mess with your hormonal balance. Your cortisol levels increase, which messes with your insulin resistance. And none of that is good for you. It basically mimics the early stages of diabetes. And if that wasn't bad enough, going back to the poor choices of your amygdala, sleep deprivation suppresses the production of leptin. Leptin is the fat hormone that signals your brain that you're full and you should stop eating. So based on all these hormonal influences, the researchers generally connect the dots and say chronic sleep deprivation will give you diabetes and obesity. And interestingly, on a side note, they found that too much sleep does the same thing. So it's bad for you too and produces a lot of the same physical and cognitive problems. Let's also be very clear that these studies tend to be very severe in their sleep deprivation methodology. These researchers are keeping people awake for 48 hours at a time or limiting them to three hours a night. We're not talking about staying up an extra half hour to squeeze in one more episode of your favorite Netflix binge. No, they're going hardcore. One interesting thing is that they found that certain cohorts, specific cohorts like surgeons, are able to adapt to this common sleep deprivation in practice in their roles, and they don't lose the ability to do their work, like, you know, cutting you open. And I'm not making this up, but I'm not sure if I'm more bothered by the fact that we sleep deprive our doctors routinely or relieved by the fact that they figure out how to function with it. So finally, can you catch up? Can you play the game where you go a couple days without sleep and then make it up on the weekend by sleeping more? Eh, kind of. It's not binary. You still get the impact of sleep deprivation. Sleeping two more hours the next day doesn't wipe that out, but after a couple of days, your body returns to equilibrium anyhow. Now let's do some, have some more fun, do some storytelling here. When I was a young professional, there were always these success gurus, and they still exist today, that claim that your need for sleep is all in your mind, meaning you can condition yourself to sleep less and therefore get more done. And I'm going to call bullshit on that. (laughs) Of course, there's some wiggle room where you can get up a little bit earlier or sleep a little bit less, 
But you cannot just will yourself to change the physical set point of your body by three or four hours. And the famous story around this is Arianna Huffington. She founded the Huffington Post. She bought into the will yourself to sleep less theory during her spectacular company building days. Then one day, she was walking down a flight of stairs and passed out. Her body just gave up. She smashed her head and, forgive the phrasing, she got a wake-up call. I don't know if that is a cautionary tale or not, because in the process, she had already built a solid, successful internet publishing company and sold it for millions of dollars. But after she smashed her head, she wrote a book about it and went on the speaking circuit, of course, with more rational sleep habits. And now that I've successfully brought you back around to a discussion of Ariana's tale, is she an old wife? We don't know. I'll leave you with the thought that sleep seems to be important. I personally am trying to be more respectful of it, but maybe I'm just getting old. And remember, spatula rhymes with amygdala if you're writing a punk rock song. And now for today's featured interview. So why don't you guys do me a favor and introduce yourselves. Give me the 200 words on who you are and what you do and, and why you think we're talking. Sure. So we are Adam and Shoshana Chaim from Plant Trainers. And essentially who we are are people who are looking out for others in the world. We want to help other people improve their quality of life and let them learn more about plant-based nutrition, let them learn more about other lifestyle modalities that will help them stay in the best health possible because we were in a position where we weren't sure what was going to happen with our health and we were told that our children would be raised with one parent and we never want other people to be in that situation as well. And when we changed our life, we essentially helped other people to be better athletes. We helped other people to be better parents, to be healthier. And we're just, just better loving people in general, better people in general. We're loving it every day. Great. So the journey here for you is you came to this lifestyle a little bit later on. And it sounds like uh, because of some key health events. Is that true? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, when I was 36, 37, I had a pain running across my chest. And I grew up as an athlete, as someone who participated in sport regularly. And I thought I was eating a healthy diet. And it seemed very strange that as a personal trainer, as a physical educator, as an athletic director, that I'd be having symptoms of a heart attack at that age. And at the time, we had one child and another one on the way. And I was told that I won't be around to see the second one be born, possibly, or see them grow up. And it turned out that when I changed my diet to a whole food plant-based diet, I basically erased the beginning stages of heart disease that I had. And the tumor that they found on my kidney started to shrink and all the symptoms of chronic illness that I had had over the years or allergies that I had had over the years had dissipated. And at the same time, my athletic performance 
improved and I started to get into triathlons and endurance sports. And we just decided that since I had such a dramatic change in my personal life, it was important for our whole family to follow suit. And then we ended up sharing that with everybody that we come in contact with, students, clients, listeners to our show. And it's just been a journey of helping others improve their quality of life at the same time. Yeah. So this is not an uncommon story or a new story, right? I mean, I've been hearing this story for the last, well, probably 15 years, right? But typically the start is not a healthy athletic guy gets the call. Typically it's more like someone in their mid thirties who has uh, been neglecting themselves and, and, following the standard American diet and not doing anything, they go in for a doctor's appointment and the doctor says, hey, you know, unless you change your, something, you won't see your kids graduate college and you're two months away from being on diabetes medication and, and all that. But it's interesting to me that you were already in an athletic modality and you were able to figure out, which probably helped you figure it out a little bit faster. But talk a little bit about that because, you know, what I'm saying is typically people will say, well, you know, I'm already doing it. Right? I'm an athlete. I'm already doing it. I don't have anything to worry about. And it's really easy for most people to recognize from the outside that they have issues or to see other people, oh, they're overweight. They must have health issues. But the truth is that we don't know how healthy we are on the inside until in a lot of cases, it's too late. I mean, heart disease is a silent killer. It's the number one killer in women. And we don't talk about how women are affected by heart disease until it's too late. And often we don't get the signs and symptoms until, oh, they're dead from a heart attack. And a lot of people that are not overweight could be the term that you hear is skinny fat and your arteries are clogged on the inside when you don't see them. Nobody sees it unless you test it or unless you have the signs or symptoms of illness. And it's something that we really work hard at trying to educate people to take hold of their lifestyle before they're finding themselves in a circumstance where they don't have the choice like I did, where I needed to find a way to fix myself once I was already in that situation. So that's really what got us started on this path is we realized that people really need to start to take a hold of their lifestyle and they really have choices that they could make that could make a difference for themselves long-term, but until they decide to make that choice and take that step and go in that healthier direction, they're basically playing roulette with their life. They don't know the outcome. They don't know the long-term. I mean, we never do, but at least we could make better choices along our path to put ourselves in the best place possible so that we are here long-term to watch our kids grow up if we have kids and if that's something that's important to us. Yeah, I mean, I'll pull one more thread on this and then we'll move on to some more athletic-based stuff. But there was a point where it seemed like every question I asked would be answered with either, well, you need to switch to barefoot running or become a vegan was the answer to every single question that was posed in athletic forums, right? So, I mean, that impresses me as there's a bit of magical thinking going on too, these things are not cure-alls for everything, right? And you can kind of get the answer you want on the internet. But how do you separate fact from fiction in this environment, I guess, is what I'm saying. So I think that we really concentrated on the facts at the beginning because we were not looking for a way to make veganism healthy for us. We weren't animal advocates. We had no problem with the food that was on our plate. But when Adam said, if I'm healthy, if I'm a good weight if I'm active and I don't look 
sick on the outside. What is it in my environment that's making me be like this? And he began to look for the research. He began to look for the facts. We both began to understand research and how it's misconstrued or created research. We started to look for real facts, real research. And this is what we found. We found that a plant-based diet is the best way to protect yourself against and reverse diseases that exist. 80% of the diseases out there are not necessary and it's very fact-driven. Now, would I have an easy time eating an animal tomorrow if the facts were telling me that eating that animal could save my life? Probably because I haven't eaten them in a very long time. But if the research is real and the research is there, then I need to do that for my health and for my well-being. Then that's something that I guess at the end of the day I would have to do. And that's how we really got into this in the first place. We were looking for a way to save his life. Right. Yeah. Let's change directions a little bit here. The reason I reached out to you is because I have a lot of endurance athletes, marathon runners and triathletes and ultra runners in my circle. And one of the things they asked me, because everybody's trying to live a better life and a healthy plant-based diet is part of that as much as you can, but bringing that into an athletic event, how do you bring that into your training? How do you bring that into an Ironman? How do you bring that into an ultra marathon in such a way that you can have the same performance or you know what I'm saying? What's the way to bring that tool into those athletic pursuits? Well, the good news is that there are so many more options available these days than there were even 10 years ago. And that are plant-based options that race directors are providing on their courses. And There are so many quick snacks that you can grab that are plant-based that will help give you those quick recovery days and that energy boost when you need it. You just need to figure out what foods work for you as an individual because we are all different. So I could sit here and tell you all the foods that I use during my Ironman races or my ultra endurance races, but they may not work for everybody. And so one of the key things is really finding what works for each person as an individual during those races. So, I mean, I can give you examples. So let me narrow it down, ask it a different way. What I'm used to in these events, especially the triathletes, because they're crazy about equipment and special food, it's always some sort of packaged food. It's gels, it's goos, it's drinks. And I'm sure that now with plant-based eating being on the forefront, there's a whole plethora of those gels and foods and drinks that are plant-based, but that still impresses me as sort of packaged food. And it's probably still a lot of sugar. So I appreciate your comment on that. And then if you go whole food, then you're out there, you're chewing on a beet at the 50 mile mark. You know, that probably would have some challenges for your digestive system, right? So can I dial it back a little bit first? I think that it's important that you're saying that they want to perform better as athletes, or at least the same, and that they want to be overall healthy. So I think the message here is that it's not just what you're going to eat during the race. It's what you're setting yourself up for in advance. So nobody starts training for an Ironman three weeks before, right? So months before, if you- nobody should. Or no, sorry, nobody should. I'm sure (laughs) some of you have. We all know that person. We we all know that person. (laughs) But, you know, realistically thinking, going out there, 
wanting to do your best, there's usually a lot of planning involved. So months before starting to make that transition into a plant-based diet, eating foods that are more alkaline, eating foods that are anti-inflammatory, eating foods that are going to increase your recovery and that are going to give you the energy that you need, not just for your training, but for your mental capacity in your day job and all of those other things as well. So we need to start to make that transition overall. It's not just what you're eating on the course. You can't eat a burger the night before and then go eat whole foods on the course and expect to do your very best. Right. Or you can't expect to, but you won't. Um, So it has to be an overall lifestyle change in general, I think, as you work towards your goal, whether you keep that going in the future or not, and then you are starting to digest that beet better. Because people who eat beans for the first time, they say they get a stomachache, they get gas, they can't eat it. Well, your body needs to learn how to digest that food. The enzymes need to break it down properly. And if you haven't eaten it in a long time or ever, it's like drinking a whole bottle of wine your first time drinking. The results are not going to be very good. You need to work your way up. So I think you need to think of it in terms of day-to-day and months in advance as well. Yeah, and you need to get your gut biome to adjust as well, right, is what you're saying, is your body acclimates to that. And it takes a while. It takes probably a month for your body to acclimate. Sorry, you mentioned all those packaged foods that are on the race and the goos and, and the gels, and I'm not a big fan of those, and I never really was. And while everybody usually uses those goos and tapes them to their post on their bike, I had a Ziploc bag of cut up sweet potatoes or dates and uh, sometimes packets of nut butters and guacamole. And those are all whole foods that are are real food that took my body time to adjust to. I didn't just decide, oh, it's race day. I'm going to pack down these sweet potatoes and dates and see what happens during the race. These are foods that I had on my bike during my long training sessions and I tested them so that when I got off my long bike and I got onto a run, I felt good and able to perform at the level that I was really training for. It's it's a matter of not trying something new on race day. And just like you have to physically train your body for a specific race, you have to physically train your body for the nutrition for that race as well. Yeah. And as I do this longer, I find that I need less fuel, not more fuel, right? You can just sort of run on your body fat much longer once you get used to it. So maybe you don't need as much bulk or as much quantity of fuel as you convert to that to that modality, that vegan plant-based modality. But a lot of the natural stuff, like even dates and stuff, has a lot of roughage in it, right? So like you say, you have to adjust to that, get your gut. So your timing is right and you're not wasting mm-hmm. a lot of time during your race. Yeah, well, it does take longer to metabolize. But what was really interesting when Adam was first racing is that the lists for the grocery shopping kept changing. So he went through spurts where he was trying to go through a lot of whole food carbohydrate foods. And then he would go through a time where it was more fat. So he right. had the bags of olives or he had the, the guacamoles to suck back. Mm-hmm. He went through different things and he tried them out in different short races. He would train for that and, and see how he felt. So, and that's something that he does with the people that he coaches as well, finds out what works best for them, because it also will depend on what people are eating, generally speaking, in the rest of their days, not just their training of how their body's going to metabolize those foods when they're on the bike or on the run. Yep. No, no doubt. And what you said before, Shoshana, about the training impact, I found to be true as well. 
when I'm clean in my diet, I find that I get a lot less injuries or a lot less aches and pains, I would say, which tells me that there's less swelling, right? Less inflammation. And that just by saying that it should mean that you're recovering faster as well. So I found that to be true as well. It's a partner's dream because Adam used to come home from his hockey games and he used to go, oh, I'm so sore and I was smushed up against the boards and I need a massage and we ran out of Epsom salts. And those were the kinds of things that that he was coming home from, from his workouts and from his hockey and what have you. And then his transition into triathlon came along with his transition into plant-based eating. And then all of a sudden the requests for the massages went away and the Epsom salts stayed longer and we didn't have to buy it as often because he wasn't as sore. The inflammation was down. And part of the reason why the inflammation was down is because the foods that he's eating are bringing down that inflammation, but his muscle and body is also so much more agile and able to handle what he was going out there and doing. And he just kept PRing, PRing. I also removed the dairy and the animal yeah. products, and those are yeah. inflammatory foods. So by nature, the plant-based diet is an anti-inflammatory diet, which yep. makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah. And the processed dairy and cheeses and stuff, maybe not so much in Canada, but down here have a lot of extra stuff in them that's not good for you especially yes. the mass-produced stuff. And people don't get that they because they've been taught so long culturally that milk is good for you, right? Good for your bones and good for your everything, right? With the smiling kids and ads, um, people just have a hard time culturally. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge, right? It's a cultural challenge. Yeah, they kind of say, well, if I can't eat that, then what can I eat? Or I can't take part in eating with family anymore, which has a lot of historical meaning and a lot of personal meaning, but it's not about eating the cheeses that aren't dairy also, right? So there's a lot of non-dairy cheeses out there that are part of the vegan world, but they're not necessarily going to be anti-inflammatory. They're not necessarily going to be good for you. There's a lot of them are still filled with processed oils that are going to be inflammatory. So you really do need to think big, think farm, think farm from the ground. Right. And like, I think the important thing that, that you said before is it takes a while to adjust. It's like anything else, right? If you're going to try and burn in any new habit, it takes a while to for your body and your mind to adjust to it. So don't expect to be successful out of the gate and sort of cut yourself some slack, I think would be my, my advice. Um, because what you said culturally, it's absolutely true, right? If I'm going full on vegan, then I'm skipping dinner with my wife, right? Because she won't do that. So now you're cooking for two different people, right? Yeah. And we did that for a while. Our fridge was split down the middle, my food and everyone else's food, because that was what was important to me at the time until everybody else realized how important it was for all of us. And so the people that are listening, that are training for an endurance event, you're putting so much time and effort into preparing your body for a race why would you not fuel yourself with the proper fuel to be able to get you to your goal a little bit faster, more efficiently, more effectively, and you're going to feel better doing that. And that really all comes from the food that you're putting into your body. So it's really something to think about and to incorporate in a positive way that's really going to help you get to where you want to be in a much healthier way at the same time. Because endurance sports are not super 
healthy, let's be honest, depending on what you're doing. It's not the best for you physically, but taking the nutrition to the next level is going to help you achieve your goals in a much better way. Wouldn't you also plan some sort of transition time in there as well? Not just say, hey, I'm in week three of a triathlon uh, program. Let's switch to 100% vegan. There's some sort of uh, initiation sequence there where you're actually going to have a dip in performance and mental and whatever, right? There could be. I mean, it depends on the individual. Some people, like, it depends on your personality, I think. If you're someone like me who's black or white, I went all in overnight and that was it. And Cold tofu. I kind of saw Cold tofu. <laughs> changes, and, yeah, changes and improvements relatively quickly. And I didn't really see a dip. For me, I didn't. But the clients that we work with, I never push them or rush them into it and want to meet them where they are. So if they're in week three of a training program, it might not be, okay, let's turn you into a a plant-based eater only. It's going to be what types of plant-based foods are you not eating yet that would be beneficial to your overall health and your training at this stage. And then gradually put in a few different things here and there until you're ready to keep pushing a little bit more with the nutrition. I would think if we were to generalize, the people who do go all in overnight would get faster results than the people who are moving a little bit slower because they're still having those inflammatory foods or other side effects from dairy and what have you. But the other reason why some people don't have great results right away is because they're not getting enough calories, right? Yep, absolutely. burning a truckload of calories. So if we just take a regular person who's not burning all of that and doesn't need to make up for it, if you have two teaspoons of fat, let's say, right? Like two teaspoons of animal fat or olive oil or what have you, the amount of calories in that is equal to 17 cups of spinach. Right. So if you think about how much room that takes up in your stomach and you think about how many calories you're getting, if somebody eats a spinach salad that's six cups of spinach or five cups of spinach with a couple of seeds sprinkled on top, they're not getting a ton of calories. And if they call that lunch, they're going to run out of calories. They're going to run out of energy and they're going to bomb, right? Yeah. So yeah, there needs absolutely. to be an understanding of How much food do you now need to eat? What does the quantity look like when you're eating plant-based foods? Because they are more nutrient-dense, but less calorically dense. Right. And you have to have, uh, to add on to that, you have to have select um, things that you can eat that are sort of calorie-dense and nutrient-dense, like avocados or almonds or things like that to, to fill that void, right? Yes, but you don't necessarily need that all day long. The the foliage is really important too. And then the non-starchy vegetables and even the starchy vegetables as well. Right. And again, we come back to the cultural thing, right? Because it starts being like a full-time job trying to figure out what to eat. And our whole culture is designed to take that burden of finding and preparing healthy food away from the individual, right? That's where it starts to get hard again. You have that person who says, okay, I'm all in. What's the simple way to get them through that first 20 days, that first 30 days successfully, right? Do they get a coach? Do they get a meal plan? Do they have a personal shopper? I mean, what's the no-fail way of doing this for your average, busy Canadian-American? I think it really does depend on that person's personality. Um, Adam and I are very different. I'm the type of person who will hire someone and say, just tell me what to do, please. I'm too busy. Just tell me what to do. Um, Adam will just somehow figure out what to do. He'll do the research and boom, he, he figures it out and it's done. But 
I think that people need to start experimenting and they need to really just kind of decide what is their personality and what do they need to do? Do they need to hire a coach to tell them what to do? Do they, I don't love meal plans. So you brought up meal plans. Here's why I don't love them. I've worked with a lot of families, uh, mom, busy moms who want to create meal plans so that their families will just eat. They'll just know what to do. And they're like, just give me the meal plan. And I'm like, I won't do that. They're like, but I could buy one online. I'm like, if you really want to buy one online, but I won't just give you a generic one because maybe you have allergies. Maybe you're 10 people eating. Maybe you're three people eating. Maybe you don't have access to certain foods because you live in certain parts of the country. So I think that working with somebody to say, this is what we like, this is what we do now. What can I eat to make the transition seem as small as possible, but as meaningful as possible, that can be very helpful as well. So again, it's cultural, right? And people are so busy. They have 20 minutes a day. They want to make sure they're doing the right things in those 20 minutes a day to get that food prepped. Yeah. And so there are coaches available. Like we do do that with some of our clients, but the truth is that if it's something that's important to the individual, they're going to find a way to make it happen. And so whether it's through self-discipline or hiring a coach or finding a meal planning mastery course like we have. Like there's different ways for people to find that support and the support is out there and available, but it all is going to come down to making a choice that that is what is important, whether it's not culturally accepted wherever you are or whether it's not part of your cultural norm. If it's important to you, you're going to find a way to make it happen. Yeah, that's the challenge, right? That's always the challenge. So we love challenges. We're endurance athletes, right? Exactly. Yeah. I do a lot of work travel and sometimes the choice is either eat crappy or starve. So a lot of times I'll choose starve, but uh, there's strategies everywhere you can use to get get around all these challenges, right? Yeah. So why don't you guys give me where folks can find you and how they interact with you? Make sure they get that. Sure. Well, they could for sure check out uh, planttrainers.com and there they'll find the Plant Trainers podcast where we have podcasted on all things plant-based nutrition, fitness, triathlon specific, lots of different endurance sports as well. So if they want to find out what is really wrong with dairy or is meat affecting my diabetes, then there's some really great podcasts that they could listen to there. And we are on Instagram and Facebook as well. Great. So they can uh, dial up the episodes for the stuff that they're looking for. That's perfect. Perfect. So what uh, in this journey you guys have been in now, how long has it been since your event? there when you were 36? It's been nine years now. Nine years? So you're starting, yeah, yeah, so you're starting to, you're going to run into your next roadblock, which I've already gotten through, which is uh, turning 50. We'll have to check back in and see how that uh, plant-based diet helps that. Yeah, it's an adventure. I'm on my way. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, he he restarted his calendar after his 40th birthday because they said he wouldn't make it to that. So he's actually just- I'm actually just five years old right now. (laughs) You're living on uh, free time. Bonus time. (laughs) Bonus time. So um, in this journey in the last nine years, what are the top three things you folks have learned? Probably the most important thing I've learned is the power of food, how it has the power to help heal us or to harm us. And the food that you consume is directly related to not only our performance athletically, but our performance in every single thing that we do, improving sleep, improving 
aptitude, improving work life or improving relationships or doing the exact opposite, depending on the choices that you make. I mean, that's probably the biggest overriding message that I've learned over the last nine years is how powerful food really is. And everything that we put into our mouth, into our body, usually comes down to a choice that we're making. And we really have a lot of power in the health of our body. We just don't really realize it. And we're trying to help people realize it before it's too late. So the power of food is probably my top message that I've learned over the last nine. And uh, Shoshana? My top thing that I've learned is that it is not just one thing. So it's not just food. It's not just exercise. It's not just the sleep. It's not just your ability to reduce stress. It's not just your understanding of the body. So after we went through what we went through, I ended up experiencing some severe mental health issues that came out of that stress, anxiety, PTSD. And despite eating really well, and despite meditating, and despite doing yoga, I was still on a downhill slope, and I needed to figure out how to look at myself a little bit more holistically and see what else I can do and understand the body's healing mechanisms and all different kinds of molecules that are in our body already and figure out how to heal myself. So it's not just one thing. And in that also not to push yourself to what you think you need to do but do what you actually need to do to heal. Because I kept trying to train and that was messing me up because I couldn't let my ego go. So it's a whole body. And would you say the turning point for you was when you started listening to your body? I think the turning point for me was when I opened my mind to be open to things beyond what I already knew. So as a health coach and as a plant-based lifestyle advocate, there were so many things that I knew already, but I hadn't looked deep enough into how the body works and what's happening in the mitochondria and what else is happening there besides creating energy and what else can I do? And, And when I opened my mind and accepted new things, the universe brought me what I needed and I understood so much more about supplements and what are the right supplements for everybody and for me. That's great. Yeah, that's great. I think that underscores you never stop learning, right? And you never stop growing. And that's kind of one of the secrets to uh, if there is such thing of being successful at life, that's one of the secrets, right? That's right. So, all right, I'm going to move you guys towards the exit. I do appreciate your time. And by the way, your audio is outstanding. Your audio quality is outstanding. You guys have done this before. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, over almost at 350 episodes of our podcast. So it's been oh. five years running. And, and yeah, we're trying to always improve not only what we're doing in life, but on the audio as well. Is it us or is it the Blue Yeti? <laughs> Who knows? Oh, <laughs> well, you get the old Blue Yeti, the snowball. No, we have the big one, uh, the blue one, yeah. Yeah, so I've started uh, going back to the digital audio now with these recordings, and it's much clearer. My editor um, actually commented on that today. I had dropped back to the telephone because that seemed to be the lowest common denominator that everybody could figure out, but that audio quality was really sketchy. Cool. All right, my friends, that was great. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Chris. All right, cheers. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. After the Apocalypse 
The afternoon sun slanted warm across the river's surface. The water was high from the recent rains, and a muddy hue swirled in the shallows. Early mayflies prickled the surface here and there, and lazy ripples hinted of fish and dorsal fins. A cottonwood tree trailed its branches into the flow, creating a rip in the otherwise placid waters. In the low hiss of water sounds, a man cleared his throat. "'How long you been here?' the teenager asked. The old man leaned back, cleared his throat again, pulled aside the protective gauze of his mask, and spat. "'Couple years now,' he eyed the younger soul with a mix of weariness and caution. The boy continued, leaning back into a fallen tree, feigning disinterest, looking carefully sideways at the old man with shaded eyes. You must have seen a lot in your time. You must have been here in the before times. For the boy knew that the older ones liked to talk about the before times. Maybe he could get this surly old one off his guard. Yeah, I was there. The old man relaxed a bit and readjusted the weight of his wiry frame, like a gymnast limbering up. I was up north when it began. I worked my way down here where it's warmer in the winters after the first wave passed. It got pretty weird. Once the system got pushed beyond its limits, things got bad fast. He eyed the boy and gestured with a shrug to a partially collapsed, burnt-out building tipping into the river a few kilometers downstream. A lot of people died. He finished, as if to say, that's all I have to say. But the boy wouldn't let it rest and pulled the thread. I heard there was the dying and then those that was left took to killing each other. The old man shrugged. Once the supply chain broke down, it was a zero-sum game. Take a place like New York City, you had, what, 20, 30,000 people per square mile and no way to keep them fed? Starving people don't act reasonably. He looked out over the water. It sorted itself out. The boy looked over the man's shoulder, eyeing the house, and then back at the man himself. What did you do back, you know, before, mister? A sharp look. It doesn't matter, boy. I was fast and smart enough to make it out into the country and stay alive. We covered probably a hundred hard miles that first day and got out of the trouble. Those that couldn't run, they stayed, they died. We ran, we lived. His eyes clouded over with the faces of ghosts. The boy adjusted his respirator and casually moved his hand towards the hilt of his machete as if brushing off a bit of dirt. You got anything to trade, mister? Well, I have some dried fish and squirrel, plus some sweet marsh plant that makes pretty good stew. I'll feed you, kid. I have what I need here, but I'm not looking for company. I won't say no to a meal, mister. You've got a pretty good setup here. I survive. Thanks, mister. Let me let me cut some wood for a fire. 
the boy said, smiling and unsheathing the big knife and shouldering his way casually forward. The old man rolled quickly over the log he was seated on. Landing on his feet, he took off running along the sandy shingle of the river. Come back here, you son of a bitch, yelled the teenager, taking off in pursuit. The old man settled into a hard pace, his homemade cleated shoes biting firmly into the soft mud. But the boy was close on his heels, swearing and slipping. A well-traveled trail opening on the left, and the old man had disappeared into the forest and up a steep, loose, rocky climb. The kid was pretty good and was staying close. Others had given up at the sight of the big climb. The man breathed deeply in through the protective gauze, filling his lungs to soothe the burning in his thighs. Three more stilted strides pushed him over the crest, and he shook out his arms, unfolding his lanky frame for the long descent along the crest. He could hear the kid about 25 meters back now, struggling up the loose slope. He relaxed his form and balanced his body against the downhill with long, quick strides. Through a dense cedar thicket and back out onto the beach, he pushed hard now for the house. He rounded a corner and reached for where he knew it would be. The kid was breathing hard when he came into view. He looked quite surprised. Eyes wide behind his mask as the old man settled his breathing and released the crossbow bolt. The old man scratched his scraggly beard under his mask and fished an old medal from a box. He hung it around the boy's neck as he rolled the body into the swiftly flowing stream. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Well, my friends, we have stayed calm and leaned on our inherent strength and nibbled a bit of kale through the end of another Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-427, Done and Down. So what What now, huh? <laughs> well, it's all a bit up in the air, which is okay with me. My A-race wasn't Boston. My A-race was, and still is, the Tunnel Marathon in June, and I think we'll be through the current headwinds by then. And I'll drop my training back into base building and strength for another month or so before ramping up for that. That Grand Canyon run, though, which I was talking about in September, unfortunately, that's probably not going to happen now that Boston is dropped squarely into the same time slot. If you think about it, it's really a bit of a relief. Spring's such a busy time of year, and me with the new job... You know, I was starting to stress out a bit with all that springtime stuff that happens in the springtime stuff season. And now we've potentially got the space to catch up on some other things that we might have not done had they been crowded out. Ollie, the collie, he's doing great. He was getting a bit crazy because my training and travel crowded out his running time. But I'm going to grab him, take him out in the woods after this. Now I can get back to doing a little ollie time, but he's still a maniac, right? (laughs) I joked this week that we should have named him Satan. He's like a gremlin in the house. A partial list of things he's eaten would include socks, shoes, underwear, towels, reading glasses, all the channel changers, print cartridges, 
hats, gloves, napkins. I mean, if you walk around my house, you'll find socks and shoes perched on all the high places, tenuously out of harm's way. And this just in, he's a digger. My yard looks like a scene from the movie Holes. You know, (laughs) he literally sits on my head if I try to watch TV, right? This is his favorite thing. Stick his tongue in your mouth when you're not looking. (laughs) That and having any part of you in his jaws all the time. So my current strategy is to survive until he gets a bit older and then try to train him (laughs) again. (laughs) He'll be an asset in the apocalypse, though, I'm hoping. So those of you who have been with me for a few years will know that I was born for the zombie apocalypse. And here we are. My time has come. So (laughs) I hope you enjoyed the interview and the storytelling today. Hopefully this can be a bright spot in your week. Don't forget to be a leader. The world needs you. This is that time when they will say, remember that time everyone else freaked out? And Bob, he was the rock we could rely on. So it's your moment, Bob. Make us proud, and we'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Track five from Brian Sheff, The Rock Opera by the Nays. It's a real corker called... I want to know. Tunes for the apocalypse, my friends. Life is black as can be My life's a ball that's still 